Welcome listeners, this is Rusty Reno at First Things Offices. I'm sitting at the Editor's Desk, and this is the Editor's Desk podcast, and today we have Elizabeth Corey, a frequent writer here at First Things, to talk about her marvelous uh, essay about children's books. T is for timeless. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's great to be here. Why, what is the role of books for children? Oh my goodness, that's a great question. And, um, you know, there are lots of ways one could answer that. I think in a certain sense, it's, it's the first way they begin to develop a moral imagination. And, you know, when they're little, you can read them board books, you can read them stuff that really just is mostly pictures and doesn't have a lot of substance. But as, as of course, any parent knows, as they get older, you, uh, it, ma- it makes a difference what you read them. And so uh, I, I think what I started to realize is that there were good children's books and then there were not so good children's books. <laughs> and that was the thing that motivated the, <laughs> the piece because um, I've, I've had three kids now and I've, I've read with all three of them. And this, and my youngest got into this book club that I write about in the in the essay, and it is just, it's got some really good things. But I, I'm starting to see the ways in which um, the co- contemporary culture wants to mold our kids into certain uh, into certain roles and and to take away the, uh, aspects of the imagination that I think are really present in a lot of traditional books. You talk about, I guess we call it two distortions. Uh, maybe is the word I would use of the genre, the children's book genre. I guess one is um, epitomized by that wonderful title you <laughs> get, Baby Loves Aerospace Engineering. I mean, it's just so absurd to even say the title. And I guess this is the notion of preparing them for careers. And then the second distortion is maybe epitomized with the title A is for Activist. And I... I was thinking about that and I thought, well, these are really books for parents and not for, or books addressing parental anxieties rather than books for children. That's absolutely right. That's, that's interesting that you put it that way. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. You know, as you were just speaking there, I, I realized, you know, in a certain way, this is what colleges are trying to do to students. I, I write a lot about uh, the state of contemporary university education. And the two things we're obsessed with, I teach at, at Baylor, uh, are ca- career professionalization, like what's what's the, the mode of the university in getting you to a successful career and where you'll make a lot of money and be important. And the other part of that is uh, is politics. It's not so much at my own university, but at many places, we all know this all too well, that there's a kind of indoctrination into politics. So it struck me that as I received these books in the book club, I was seeing the same sorts of <laughs> things that are being taught to college students and, of course, to high school uh, students and then all the way down to middle school and, and to, to, to babies. So I think it's just our it's our adult elite preoccupation with these certain uh, goods that we think are um, that are encompassed by politics and, and by career. And I think it's a really terrible thing when it infects our children's literature, but it, it definitely has. And to walk into any children's book uh, seller right now, you are bombarded with this stuff. So what do children want? You go through some aspects. I mean, you have that marvelous uh, um, image from, who's the writer who's uh, 
Teratiki about how children want enchantment or what she calls uh, mysterious realism. That seems to be one thing. That, I mean, that was certainly true for my kids to enter into these imaginative worlds, which were kind of believable, but also unbelievable. Exactly. Well, I, I, Tara's, I, I don't know Tara, but she writes for uh, that piece came out in uh, Mirror Orthodoxy and it's about a year old. Just uh, look it up uh, and you can read it, but it's a wonderful essay about what, what she does term mysterious realism. And what I take that to mean is, is things like uh, what we see in Maurice Sendak's books, um, where the wild things are uh, in the night kitchen, these sort of uh, quasi real books. I mean, they're, they're about people and they're about things, but they're so uh, wonderfully imaginative. I mean, you, in, in the one of them, of course, we all know where the wild things are. The, the boy is in his room and his room becomes a jungle. And he imagines this tremendous year long voyage out to, to meet the wild things. And then to come back and the, of course, your children are wondering with you, could that happen to me? You know, mm-hmm. but I'd be in my room and, and engage in the same kind of adventure. And I think books that that are based on sort of children's normal experiences, but then take it into another realm of imagination, they love that. And books that do that, I think, are, are extremely valuable. Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web, those E.B. White classics. Sometimes it's the human-like exploits of animals that also trigger this magical or mysterious realism. It's, you know, it's I agree. Sendak is particularly vivid. But I think that that kind of way of which everything is identifiable because these are very normal interactions, but it's cast into it's placed in a in a uh, you know a, a a house that's at the base of a tree, and exactly. the conversations are being um, are between squirrels. Um, is that uh, which is that book that has the the squirrels and in the forest. Anyway, I can terrible with my children's book titles. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny that you bring up the animals because what I've what I've also realized, and of course everybody probably knows this, is that what children's books are so wonderful at doing is bringing the animal world into the human world. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, the the book I'm reading to my daughter right now is the Trumpet of the Swan, and the trumpet the trumpeter swans in that book are a ma- are a man and a wife, and they have absolutely human characteristics. So that mm-hmm. the wife is kind of, kind of looks at her husband with a little bit of bemused, um, uh, just ha- she, she's she's frequently like normal human wives often are I think uh, a little bemused at her husband and the husband is very masculine in his characteristics but but the point is that they're these two swans and they're having children and the way they relate to one another is just like humans and it's, and, and kids love that you know they love to see animals taking on characteristics of human beings. And, and I, I mean, as parents, I think it's fun for us too. I can't remember the, I think it was, I don't remember which literary critic uh, it was who noticed that one of the things of literature is to make familiar things strange. Mm. And so the having it, having familiar things, interactions among, among animals is a kind of making of the familiar strange. And also making the, the strange familiar, and that interchange between those two realms, I think, is satisfying to adults as well as to children. Just that the children's books provided in a more obvious and immediate way. Um, but you also look at another kind of book, 
I guess, epitomized by Dr. Zeus, but really we picked it up in your title, T is for Timeless, or that absurd title, A is for Activist. <laughs> and that is, uh, this is the verbal book, verbal fun, verbal play, verbal patterns. And even the most basic books, they're, they're presented as teaching the ABCs. But of course, ABCs are incredibly delightful to children. They love to be able to, to recite their ABCs. So there's something about these books that just are word plays or rhymes or so forth that just seems to tap into something deeply human. I think that's right. And of course, we all know Dr. Seuss uh, as the the supreme example of that. And I think those books are wonderful. The other uh, books that are really good in this way are uh, the, they're not the Berenstein Bears series because those are very much moral tales. I, mm-hmm. Rusty, I don't know if you read those, uh, yes. to children, but I mean, every, in every edition of the, of the Berenstein Bears, you're learning something and it's, you know, about stealing or uh, why not to uh, be mean to your brother or sister, all these things. But there's also um, a, there were some books written by those people before the Berenstein Bears series really started. And they've got uh, like inside, outside, upside down where you learn prepositions. And I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. the most obvious thing, and, but it's wonderful because you get a little bear who's in a box and he falls off the box and you, you know, the, you're both teaching the child to, to read, but also teaching him or her about prepositions and all, you know, there's so much content in there in such a silly little book and it's about a bear who goes on an adventure. So, of course, kids are going to love it. And so I think there are lots of ways in which those seemingly silly or fanciful books, especially Dr. Seuss, uh, can, can, be, can be just simply enjoyable for children. And they're learning a lot, but they don't necessarily see it as now you are going to learn about prepositions. Right. It would be right. no fun for anybody. Right. Right. Uh, no, it's a playfulness. And yes. they, they get in, they're in on it. You know, um, that they 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 seem to delight in the play, and I guess the best for me at least as a parent, the most enjoyable children's books to read to the kids were the ones that that were th- those ones with the verbal play. I think most parents like the Doctor Zeus books because they also the parent takes delight in the word play. Yes, it's universal. There's another category that you don't cover, and that is. I think children like an element of danger. And I think of the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Madeline, Madeline yes. and her sudden terrible danger. And, yes. um, and I think the Sendak books have it in spades, uh, often without the um, reassuring ending. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> And I don't know, what is it about kids? They do like to, it's like, I guess grownups like to go to horror movies or some kind of grownups like to go to horror movies and kids that participate in that same human fascination with the peril and danger. Well, that that's a great point. And it's not, you're right. It's not something I take up in this little piece, but the Madeline books are really interesting because they're, the one I'm thinking of right now is the one where, of course, Madeline gets appendicitis. Mm-hmm. It's the middle of the night. Uh, Miss Clavel is there and she's in with, with all the little girls in the beds and suddenly she's ill. And it's very scary for a child. It's actually scary for a parent, too, you know, yes. when a child is ill. And the, the doctor comes in the middle of the night, takes her in an ambulance. And um, at the end, of course, she's she's healed and she's visited by her friends. But I think there's something there's something there that's um, you know this this going out and having something terrible happen and then 
the redemption that comes at the end that is reassuring mm-hmm. for for kids. Um, it certainly is reassuring for for me as I read it to know that it has a happy ending. The the interesting thing, the Roald Dahl uh, books you mentioned, I've just started reading those with my seven year old, and they are dark. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, not as much, but we read a book recently called The Twits, which is just sort of a terrible book about these awful women, one of whom is very fat and he calls her fat, you know, which we could never do in the present day. And he calls the other one, you know, skinny, like a, like a spear, sort of a, like a stick like figure. And these are the meanest women you will ever encounter Mm. in any literature. And it's for kids and they're eventually killed, (laughs) which, you know, also doesn't strike as us as appropriate for children's literature anymore, but you're happy when they're killed because they're so evil. Mm. And uh, so Dahl is really um, unsparing in his, his willingness to, to have good people and bad people and to have kind of crazily violent things happen. And nevertheless, we still read them to children. I actually thought as I was reading to my daughter that it's a matter of time before that stuff gets, gets canceled because <laughs> you, can't, you can't call people fat anymore and you can't uh-huh. do anything um, that you know, is explicitly violent. But his books still do. What about the Babar series? Do your kids cotton to Babar? Honestly, that is one I have never explored. Would you recommend it? Oh, my kids loved it. I don't, I'm not quite sure why, but they they really love the Babar series. Uh, I think it goes back to this kind of mysterious realism, yeah. you know, and just the fanciful nature of these, what are they, elephants, yes. Yeah, they're elephants. Who are king and queen. And, and um, you say that uh, no princess books for your daughter. What is there? A, is this an Emersonian principle exercising itself in That's the funny. Corey household or what, 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 what no. the aversion to princesses? Well, there is a, there, if, if it's not career or politics, there is a kind of um, just a real dumbing down of stories and, mm. and a sort of modeling everything on television shows or movies. So there's a whole, there's a host of, uh, you know, books about princesses and basically oh, retelling the... So princess, uh, princess is just kind of a synecdoche for a Disney book. Yeah. And there, there's so many of those and they're really boring to read because they're just retellings of the, um, of, uh, you know, movies or TV shows that you could be better off watching than reading the books. <laughs> now, interestingly, though, I mean, along the lines of princesses, there's a whole genre of books that are reinterpreting princess stories into, into feminist tales. And, you know, they're, they're retelling um, Cinderella so that she's not rescued by, or she doesn't end up marrying the prince, but she actually goes out and asserts herself as a, as an independent woman. And that's a much better ending of the story than the original Cinderella story. So there's a kind of um, retelling in the empowerment of girls that goes through a lot of the princess stories, which, which wouldn't be my cup of tea either. Um, So in general, I'm, I'm not a big fan of those kinds of stories. One of the questions that goes circles back to where we started with books for kids. I mean, it's 2021. We all have screens, screens in our pockets, screens on our walls, videos. Um, but I, I think Marshall McLuhan noted that TV is cold and radio is warm. Uh, and he thought that was because radio required active imagination to mm-hmm. see what you were hearing as opposed to TV that just gives you everything. And I'm wondering whether you think that's true for children's books, that 
the book, even though the picture's on the page and their words, there's a way in which the slow pace and the lack, I mean, you, a children's book might have 20 or 30 pages in it. So it's, you know, the visual stimulation pales in comparison to yes. a, a video. So they have to actually kind of fill in all the narrative gaps in their imaginations. That's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think there's there's something to the idea that you have fewer images. So so you do have to fill in those gaps in a way that TV or a movie uh, or certainly a game on a, on a phone doesn't allow. Uh, there's also, though, uh, the simple fact of sitting down to read with a child takes time. Mm. And we used to think, well, that's just that's just what you do. But I think it, it, in the present busyness of our age, it's saying something to that child that you mean enough to me that I will spend 30 minutes every night with just you, you know, lying down in your bed, reading these books that you enjoy reading. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a sense of even leisure there. I mean, one of my favorite books ever is of course, Leisure, the Basis of Culture by Joseph Pieper. And I mean, children aren't the most leisured creatures most of the time, but when you catch them in that time before they go to bed, mm-hmm. you can you can kind of t- make them pause with you and engage in a, in a in a more or less ritualistic process of 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 reading, and that in itself is valuable. and And I think then the progression comes. You know, they they start with the picture books, and then they go to these more um, these books that are more words, and they can the, the imagination can develop in that way, or at least that's what I think what anybody who reads hopes is that they then want to start to read these books themselves when before all they cared about was the pictures. The, your observation about ritual, I mean, one of the great challenges for parents is that children want to read the same books over and over and over again. <laughs> yes, they do. They do have their favorites and they seem never to tire of having it read to them yet again. I know. It it's does really often something. get to the point where you can recite it without the uh, without even having to see the words on the page. It's <laughs> a, so well rehearsed. The the um, first things magazine. I don't. You mentioned the Giving Tree, which is not to your taste, you say. Um, but in 1995, January of 1995, January 1995 issue, First Things had a symposium on the Giving Tree. Yes, I knew about this. And uh, I think I would call it a an eccentric moment in the history of the magazine. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I'm not quite sure what Father Richard John Newhouse's had in mind when he commissioned all these responses, but they're fascinating. Mitch Dechter um, uh, takes a negative view of the giving tree, um, that it... uh, it's a kind of submission to lifelong exploitation. Gil Mylander takes a more positive view that the tree gets as much as the tree gives. And uh, uh, Marianne Glendon has a very funny interpretation that this is the ultimate book about baby boomers growing up with indulgent parents who give them everything they want. And that's why there was so much rot in our nation. <laughs> you know, I've heard that latter interpretation from a, I, just recently from a friend, and I guess she got it from Marianne Glendon, but she said, yeah, this is the ultimate, this is sort of the apotheosis of, of baby boomers uh, right here. Just take and take and take and you know, in the sense of entitlement. <laughs> yes, I think uh, um, children's books 
they only bear so much interpretation. True, true. Although, as I say in the essay, uh, the the Lobel books are profoundly thought provoking. Arnold Lobel, he he's famous for the Frog and Toad series, which are great as they go. But this this Grasshopper on the Road, I I would encourage everyone to go out and get it and read it and think about. I mean, he's he's actually he's making some serious political points in a very lighthearted way that children, of course, won't get, but the parents really might. So, you know, I, I think they're, it's not going to be um, serious philosophy uh, of the sort that we expect in, you know, college courses, but, <laughs> but there's definitely something to think about there that is, that is more than, um, more than just, you know, the, the narrative story. And you end with books that are about, I suppose people who seek, seek the new, but realize that they already had what they desired. That wonderful story about the old hat, new hat, which I remember. That's a very lovely story. And the little house also. Um, yeah, that to you, there's a, and, and then you, you pair that with a tradition, which I think we have it in our household. I mean, we read, to our children books that my wife had had been given when she was a child mm-hmm. and even some that had been given to her mother when her mother was a child. And so there's a sense in which children's books are also a kind of emblem of family continuity and that, that the family for a child home is a kind of uh, uh, source of uh, comfort, continuity, shelter. Yeah, that's beautifully said, Rusty. I, I, I think the simple fact of having a an object in your hands that you know, you maybe your mother read or your mother's mother, your grandmother. Oh my gosh, for a child, that's that's an eternity ago that your grandmother could have been a child, and you realize um, this is an actual thing, an object that connects me to these other generations, and it's real for a kid. They can touch the book. They can touch the in in my little bear book that I reference in the essay, they're, they're stickers, you know, from my dad and my sister. And, and then Margaret has, my daughter has put her own sticker in there. And so God willing, this will go on to her children. I mean, it's, it's this, it's this tiny little thing. It's not a, it's not a wonderful, you know, piece of art or a piece of furniture, but it is, it is an object that, that speaks continuity, I think, in a way that's, um, that's moving even to a a little kid. So let's end with, your recommendation of your favorite to our listeners. What book would you say, ah, for the child just beginning to read, this is the one that has the golden one, at least in in your family experience? Well, I think I would go with the one I ended with in the the piece, which is uh, Little Bear's Visit. Because Little Bear... Uh, this again, this is Sendak. Sendak at his little, at his more tame, you know, mm. there's no darkness in this book. Well, there actually, there actually is, there's a goblin story in, in the book, but I think I would end with that simply because it's, it, it really does make the point of, um, you know, uh, you go home and you visit and then you, you, you leave home again and then you come back so that, uh, you know, there's, Ooh, there's some noises. There. Yes, I hear some children speak, uh, making yeah. their uh, noises as well. So, you know, I think that's, that's the best one. I love it. Well, good. Now, before the crying children completely take over the podcast uh, audio room, I'd like to thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Rusty. It was great. Great All fun. Right. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.